Jonathan Van Marin is a pro-life speaker. He's the communications director for the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. We invited him on the podcast because more and more Filipinos are becoming pro-abortion. There are lessons we pro-lifers can learn from the West. What are these lessons? We'll let you know in this latest episode of The Jay Ruga Show. Welcome to the J. Aruga Show. Our guest today is a public speaker, a writer. He has written for the National Review, First Things, The American Conservative, Christianity Today, etc. And there's still a long list after that, etc. He's the communications director for the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. He is an author of books entitled The Culture War. Seeing is Believing, Why Our Culture Must Face the Victims of Abortion, and Patriots, the Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement. We'll talk about the pro-life movement so that we can be informed what it is like in the West and avoid having abortion here in the Philippines. Ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Van Marin. Jonathan, how are you? Not bad. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. For those who don't know you, maybe I missed something in the introduction. Maybe you can give uh, more or a bit brief background of yourself. Okay. Uh, like the most interesting thing about me, I suppose, is I'm married. I have two kids. Mm-hmm. I have been working in the pro-life movement full-time mm. for, for just over 10 years, uh, which has been been a really incredible experience for me. I got involved in the pro-life movement uh, in university after seeing a video of, of what an abortion looks like in progress, mm. seeing what it looks like when a baby is torn apart by an abortionist, and seeing that really catalyzed me to, to get involved. And by getting involved, I realized how much could be done uh, and that's why I ended up after I was completed uh, after I had finished my history degree. Pardon me, I ended up joining uh, CCBR, working full time, and that's what I've now been mm. doing for for just over a decade. Nice, you're in Canada. That's right. Yeah, I was yeah. born in the U.S. and raised on the west coast of, of Canada, and then moved east to start up the eastern branch of CCBR. It's uh, you know like about a six hour flight because Canada is the second largest country in the world. Mm. How is it like living in Canada? Because I hear Canada is such a liberal state. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. So when when it comes to when it comes, it was interesting. There's there was an article in a British newspaper recently that called Canada the world's first woke nation, hmm. and I think that's probably true. It's certainly true for abortion. Uh, we have the most liberal abortion laws in the world, and that we have no abortion laws whatsoever. Hmm. Abortion is legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy in this country. For Whoa. any reason or, or for no reason at all, every one of these abortions is funded by the taxpayer. Mm. And uh, our current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, uh, uses abortion on the campaign trail uh, as something that he says we don't have enough access to. So mm. despite the fact that we have 100,000 abortions every year in a country of just shy of 35 million people, the Liberal Prime Minister not only w- refuses to consider laws like were proposed recently banning sex selective abortion but instead says we don't have enough abortions in this country and recently uh, gave the university of new brunswick 
over $300,000 to research how we, they could ha- get more abortions in the Maritimes. We, we know how it happened in the U.S. The turning point is Roe v. Wade. What then is mm-hmm. the turning point in Canada? How did abortion become legal there? Well, so the turning point in Canada is actually a couple of years before the U.S. In 1969, Mm. actually, it was decriminalized as part of a massive uh, omnibus bill, which is when they take a piece of legislation and they pack all sorts of different things into it and they pass Mm. it as one package. And that omnibus bill was actually put forward by Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, who also served as Prime Minister of Canada. Mm. And among many other things, it decriminalized certain sex acts, it liberalized uh, marriage laws, and then it also decriminalized abortion. So abortion went from something that was considered a criminal act and had uh, for the entirety of, of Canadian history to something that women could apply for and a panel of doctors at the hospital would decide whether or not she was eligible for abortion. And then that, those laws were challenged by the abortion movement in Canada between mm. 1969 and then in 1988, our Supreme Court threw out Canada's abortion laws and we've had no restrictions on abortion ever since then. And it's not really a gradual change in culture or was it like before the abortion laws, people, a lot of people are opposing it first then there's a gradual shift, maybe some some from the feminist movement. Yeah. So I think it's fair to say that when abortion was decriminalized in 1969, that the majority of Canadians were still pro-life. Mm. Uh, but basically, pro-life energies focused mainly on, on getting control of these panels of doctors that had to prove abortions at hospitals, because if you had control of these panels... Uh, then that basically meant that you Mm. could dictate whether or not abortions took place. Mm. And during this time, in 1970, there was a cross-country caravan of of pro-abortion feminists who did activism from from Vancouver all the way to Ottawa. When they got to Ottawa, they dumped a a black coffin filled with illegal abortion instruments in the Prime Minister's front yard. Mm. And then they chained themselves to the railings inside the Parliament buildings and actually shut down Parliament for the first time in Canadian history. So there Mm. was a robust movement that that, Mm. that championed abortion rights from 1970 all the way till 1988. And the Supreme Court case that was a catalyst for for all of Canada's abortion laws Mm. being tossed out um, was actually an illegal abortionist named named Dr. Henry Morgenthaler who would open these clinics, perform abortions illegally, get arrested, and then have his case tried in the courts over and over again. Mm. So yes, there there was quite... Quite an active movement that was working to make this happen and working to to ensure that the the politics of the issue mm. continued to shift in their direction. Yeah, because I saw the movie Roe v. Wade, the one with John Voight. I, I'm not sure if you saw that already. Mm. From that movie, I'm, I'm not sure how accurate the depiction is. It, and it's on the U.S. side. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes I might have my own biases when watching something. But it seems that the pro-abortion movement in there resorted to a lot of let's say deceptive tactics during those times. Yeah, so so the the move I thought the movie was pretty terrible, but it was actually remarkably accurate. Um, okay. as in I thought it was terrible and then I thought it was very unconvincing. Mm. Maybe because I've seen so much footage of the real people that mm. they were playing uh, and uh, so the acting just came off as <laughs> as horrifically wooden. Yeah, yeah. Um but but in, ironically a lot of the most shocking things in that film were true. So uh-huh. Uh, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, uh, who wrote a book called Aborting America, The Hand of God, a whole bunch of books, was a former abortionist 
who did abort over 50,000 children, ran one of the biggest mm. New York abortion clinics for years, aborted his own child, and mm. then after seeing an abortion procedure unfold on ultrasound, uh, had a radical conversion to the pro-life point of view, mm. and then ended up traveling not only across the United States, but around the world, advocating for the pro-life perspective. And interestingly, Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who's played by, by Nick Loeb in the film, came to Canada and debated Dr. Henry Morgenthaler on TV about mm. this exact issue. You have uh, you know, a former abortion, abortionist and an abortionist debating this on, on TV. And at one point, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler said, well, we're both doctors. And Dr. Bernard Nathanson replied, no, I am a doctor. You are an abortionist. <laughs> and it was quite it was quite a compelling line. So no, most of the most of the facts about how the abortion movement invented the number of illegal abortions, for mm -hmm. example, how they worked to get the feminist movement to adopt abortion as an issue when it previously hadn't been one of their key issues. Mm -hmm. That's also true. That story is told in the book uh, Subverted by Sue Ellen Browder. Okay. Uh, so most most of the craziest conspiratorial <laughs> stuff in the film actually did happen. Okay, okay. So, so they said they invented the percentage of doctors in favor of abortion. They invented the number. Well, they invented the number of people in favor yeah, of abortion, yeah, the number, the number of, of doctors. Yeah. They invented the number of back alley abortions. Yeah. Yeah. And then what they did, right, was, was they would look for difficult cases mm. in order to sway public opinion. So in the United States, that was Jane Roe or Norma McCorvey. Mm. Um, uh, and they basically said she was, you know, a rape victim from Texas who needed an abortion. Mm. She... She actually hadn't been raped and, and didn't get the abortion because the case took longer than that. And you see, wherever they try to legalize abortion, this is a key tactic, right? So mm -hmm. in Argentina, every, every couple of months, you would see them put forward another tragic case, and they would often hide the details. Mm -hmm. And the whole purpose of the case was to try and sway public opinion in favor of legal abortion. Mm -hmm. And so I remember at one, there was a one instance in which... Uh, um, a girl in her early teens had been raped and gotten pregnant. And this big story was um, Argentina's cruel abortion regime, you know, isn't allowing this woman to get an abortion. Now, I don't agree with abortion in any instance, but the mm. articles didn't even mention the fact that abortion wasn't illegal in the case of rape in Argentina. Mm. So they, they just, they find these tragic cases and they try to use these cases to sway public opinion. They did the same thing in Ireland. When mm. uh, Savita Halepanavar oh, yeah, died, yeah. uh, had nothing to do with abortion. Every inquest into her death um, determined that it was medical malpractice uh, mm. that that ended her life, um, and and an abortion wouldn't have saved her life. Uh, but yet, of course, the narrative the narrative prevails that ab abortion is necessary. And how do we counter this? Because evil doesn't have qualms with using lies and evil tactics. As a pro life, how how do we counter this? Well, it's it's incredibly it's incredibly difficult, but I think we can see from a, from from a couple of countries what's necessary. So, in the United States, for example, um, while polling on every other issue has shifted steadily steadily in a progressive direction, mm. um, the, the numbers of pro life versus pro choice people has held very steady, if not moved slightly towards the pro life position mm. in, in in fifty years of this debate, which is really incredible when you consider how far to the left society has moved on almost every other social issue. Yeah. Uh, in, my, in my last book, uh, Patriots on the Irish pro-life movement, I actually go through how they managed to maintain a pro-life culture for so much longer than everybody else did. And then, you know, how the deceptions of, of, the, of the progressive media and abortion activists led to, led to legalization. But what struck me as, as very interesting is that one of the reasons Ireland remained abortion-free for so many decades was because they were proactive. 
Uh, they were putting mm. boots on the ground and discussing abortion every single day in a country where abortion was already illegal. They never took anything for granted. Uh, and you saw the same thing in Argentina with the Blue Wave movement, right? You had at one point marches going on across Argentina that was numbering in the millions, millions of pro-life people were marching against abortion. And that movement has spread right across mm. South America and Latin America now, right? The Blue Wave movement can be found everywhere from, from the Caribbean states mm. to, to some of the major South American states. So being proactive, getting mobilized, and educating as many people as you possibly can is key because mm. at the end of the day, the public is going to be hearing a narrative about abortion. Mm. The only choice is, is it going to be our narrative or is it going to be mm. their narrative? Mm. Nicely said, Jonathan. You wrote a book. Yeah, you mentioned Ireland. Mm -hmm. And it's a country close to my heart because the company I work for, they send me there every now and then. Mm. And Dublin is one of my favorite cities in the world. I was in Ireland when it was still like anti-abortion, when the Eighth mm. Amendment was still there to protect the unborn. Mm. And I went there when it was repealed, which is truly heartbreaking. Can, can you give us the gist of the book you wrote, Patriots? Well, the, the gist basically, so the story that I cover is mm. I look at how they got the Eighth Amendment in 1983 in the first place, which is mm. really a, a, an unbelievable story. Uh, people forget mm. uh, that, that the Irish pro-life movement actually predicted what was going to happen. Well, they saw what happened with Roe v. Wade in other countries, and they said, oh, our Supreme Court's going to do the same thing. They're going to use you know, uh -huh. the, the right to privacy to legalize abortion. And so they, 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 they mounted this magnificent and brilliant campaign to get the Eighth Amendment inserted into the Irish Constitution to guarantee that before oh. legalizing abortion, uh, the Irish government would have to put the question to the people. And then for oh. 35 full years, they basically ran campaigns on every imaginable pro-life topic. They had billboard campaigns. Mm. Uh, they had a tour across Ireland every single summer. Uh, they mm. tabled out in public, uh, you know, handed out leaflets. They dropped off leaflets at every single door in Ireland multiple times. It was really, really unbelievable. So I go through all of that, um, the history of the movement there. And then I basically go through the campaign and how the 8th was lost. Mm. Um which essentially boils down to the fact that Middle Ireland was persuaded by every major political party in Ireland, as well as uh, not only Irish media, but the world media, that the Eighth Amendment had killed Savita Halepinavar. Mm. And that narrative took root and spread long before uh, the truth could come out, because, of course, as you said, evil has mm. no scruples. So, so immediately progressives could come out and say, uh, yeah. uh, you know, if Savita had had an abortion, she would be alive. And pro-lifers had to say, well, we need to wait for the facts. We need to you know, see the inquest. We need to see the results of the autopsy. Mm -hmm. um, and so as Winston Churchill um, liked to say, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. And when the exit polling uh, was released after the Eighth Amendment was repealed, um, it was actually revealed that most people who had voted against the Eighth Amendment had actually made up their mind in the month after Savita died before anybody knew the truth, and they simply couldn't be budged from that position, which was the oh. dominant narrative. I was in Ireland for a couple of weeks leading up to, to the day mm. of, of the vote. I was working on the ground with the campaign teams there, and the abortion activists did almost nothing. And then right before the vote, they just hung up pictures of Savita's face all over Dublin. They knew it was their most powerful weapon by far. And the, and the narrative, if you're learning something from this, is so powerful. Making a narrative is so powerful. Yeah. As I researched for this episode, Jonathan, I was searching for the keyword lies by pro-choice in Google. The search returned mm. articles entitled The Hypocrisy of the Pro-Life Movement. 
<laughs> Crisis Pregnancy Center lies and all those stuff. So you'd think it would return like thousands of articles written by pro-lifers. Has, yeah, no. has, has it been harder now in the fight for life with big tech on their side and the media on their side? It's really it's a really interesting question because what what shocks me consistently is how effective uh, social conservatives and pro-lifers have been at sort of gaming the system and learning mm. how to work with with new algorithms. So I, w- I would say that's certainly true for Google. Mm. Um, you know, like they always have official CNN articles or New York Times articles, which basically, you know, act as mouthpieces for Planned Parenthood when you Google any information on abortion, as you just mentioned. But uh, there was interestingly an article that came out recently uh, from NARAL, uh, the National mm. um, Action, uh, or sorry, the National Abortion Rights Action League, um, which is an, uh, an organization, incidentally, that's, that's featured quite prominently in, in, in the film Roe v. Wade. Mm. And, uh, and and interestingly, NARAL was working on how to better get out their messaging on social media because they said that the pro-life groups have been incre- incredibly effective at mm. shaping the narrative on abortion, on Facebook, on Twitter, on even Instagram and TikTok, whereas mm. abortion groups were having a hard time getting traction. So even though you have all these mainstream media platforms doing their best to push these messages out there, pro-life groups have been doing a very good job of it. And part of it is because... You know, like Ben Shapiro on the Daily Wire get more reach on Facebook daily than the New York Times, the Washington mm. Post, and the LA Times put together. And so when you have uh, platforms like that pushing the pro-life mm. worldview, we end up actually being pretty competitive on, on, on social media. So what I would say is, A, yes, big tech censorship is very real mm. uh, and quite obviously real, as, as your experience Googling mm-hmm. uh, um, proved. But also, um, to be more optimistic... Um, pro-lifers have done a very good job of, of gaming the system, so to speak, and mm. working around censorship and ensuring that our message is getting to, to millions of people. And that's the key, always be proactive. Like Shapiro was proactive in uh, in making Daily Wire, the company, mm-hmm. to counter these uh, giants, CNN and the other news stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's the key. Very much so, yes. Yeah. I was watching the Friends reunion a few months ago. I'm not sure if you were a <laughs> fan of Friends back then. It just occurred to me when I'm not sure if you if you know like Rachel uh, Jennifer Aniston, right? So, so her character is Rachel. When she got pregnant accidentally by Ross, it's surprising that abortion is not an option for them during that time. And there's also this scene with Monica and Chandler adopting an unwanted twins. So the mother went through the pregnancy and didn't abort the children. So Friends is a very liberal show, but you have a snapshot of America during that time, which is somehow pro-life during the 90s, at least a lot of people. Nowadays, if you see a character accidentally getting pregnant on a TV show, they resort to abortion. Well, that's actually very, very recent. So Friends is an interesting case study because Friends pushed the envelope on anything. It had the first gay yeah, wedding yeah. on TV. Yeah, um, yeah. And essentially, like, Friends was hugely contributed to the sexual revolution and yeah. hugely contributed to mainstreaming the worldview that made abortion necessary, so yeah. to speak. Um, but one of the... Int- there, there was actually an article written by, I believe, Jonah Goldberg in the National Review uh, quite a few years back. I remember having it sent to me at university um, by the TV critic of the newspaper I was working for. And he, he basically explains that like a lot of a lot of TV shows and Hollywood films simply didn't want to include abortion because nobody goes to their entertainment mm. uh, to 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 be like 
confronted with an ending that nobody thinks is happy. Mm-hmm. And he went through a whole a whole series of films where abortion is considered taboo. And another reason for this, I think, is just commercial. So mm-hmm. there have been uh, two abortion comedies in the last couple of years. Uh, one of them was called Obvious Child, was marketed oh, as an abortion yeah, yeah. comedy. Uh-huh. Uh, the other one, it's bothering me that I'm forgetting of it, about it because I actually wrote a review of it for it, National Review. Is it the one with the road um, trip? Uh, yeah, that, it, it's it that that's the one, but. Uh, the, the the title the title is slipping my mind for a moment but anyways you have so to come to the conclusion that you reviewed but it. that abortion just it, it doesn't work because abortion isn't funny mm. and nobody mm. thinks it is right mm. um and so you know maybe like louis ck or one of these guys could get away with making dark jokes about it but mm. you know people are laughing in spite of themselves and so nowadays there's a huge push by planned parenthood to normalize Mm. abortion because you know the lgbt lifestyle was so successfully normalized by by tv hosts by tv shows by film um hollywood and the entertainment industry has been one of the most powerful tools uh Mm. to tell the stories of uh uh, that the lgbt movement wants told and to normalize them in, in the uh in the minds of the american public and now the abortion industry really wants in on that too it's just a lot different mm. because nobody wants like lots of people will want to watch a film about, you know, like like knocked up where, you know, two mm. people have a baby and struggle to take care of the kid. Nobody wants to just watch a film where, you know, you know, guy meets girl, girl gets pregnant, girl aborts baby, right? Like mm. nobody wants to mm. watch that movie. Um, which is is basically the plot line of, of Obvious Child, which didn't go anywhere. It was a total flop. So there's not a lot of money in these films, mm. and that's one of the reasons I think that they've sh- they've they've generally tried to shy away from them because audiences like babies and they like love stories, but they don't necessarily want to have to think about a baby in a dumpster. Mm. Let me tell you where we are in the Philippines with regard to abortion, because ten years ago I never thought that. There's a need to defend the unborn here in the country. The mm-hmm. Catholic Church has always had the campaign to save the unborn, but I, I kind of like shrug it off. In my mind, I was thinking, you're, you're wasting your energy, guys. We will always mm. be pro-life. So, or so I thought, because a few months right. ago, I'm seeing a group of youth share around an animated video, well-produced, I might say, campaigning to legalize abortion here in the country they frame it as usual uh, as a women's right women's rights issue just like in the west and when i look at like facebook comments whenever abortion is discussed i see a lot of filipinos now defending abortion all of a sudden i realized that we need to brush up on our defense of the unborn so that's where we're heading as a country yeah being proactive is, is so essential because we do have we do have the best arguments and, mm. and their arguments really haven't changed in 40 years but but you know i not i don't know much about the philippines mm. um i know a lot about the pro-life movement in a lot of countries but i know next to nothing about about the abortion debate in the philippines mm. but i would assume that the the tactics of our opponents are going to be very similar to how they've been mm. literally everywhere else you know, the, the pro-life movement in Argentina is phenomenally different than the pro-life movement in Ireland, which is very different than the American pro-life movement. The one commonality all of them have is abortion groups look for a face, a human mm. face, that they can show to the public and say, this person has been victimized by abortion laws, mm. therefore abortion laws are cruel and must be abolished. Mm. Whether it's Savita, whether it's Norma McCorvey, 
whether it was the the underage rape victim in Argentina, that that's, that is what they're looking for. There was evidence in Ireland that they were actually trawling hospitals looking for for a victim mm. that they could use. Mm. And in several instances, they tried. And with Savita, they were finally successful. And it's true for all issues. Like, let's say for BLM, they, they have George Floyd. It's not abortion, but mm. they, they do the same tactic. And George mm-hmm. Floyd, there's really no like racism involved, but they, they blew it up. Uh, yeah. So 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 yeah. Uh, let's just let's let's discuss the common pro-abortion arguments and why they fail. Uh, just real quick. So, so so we're both men, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Do we have a say in this topic? Because they say we don't have a uterus, so we don't have to give our opinion on this. Mm. What, what well, arguments don't arguments don't have genitals, <laughs> so that's a that's a terrible argument just to start with. Um, also, also the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada just attacked mm. Justin Trudeau mm. for saying that men should shut up because only women can get pregnant. Because you're forgetting that it's 2021 and men can get pregnant now too. Mm. In in in, in woke crazy town. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I have a few answers to that question. The first is that every child has two parents. Mm. And that, the, and that the, the idea that a father should be sidelined and should have nothing to say when he wants to stand up for his child is repulsive. Second of all, I, I, the, we've, I've talked to thousands of, of women about, about the issue of abortion. And one of the things that I've come to firmly believe is that one of the reasons so many women have abortions is because so many men refuse to stand up and promise to take care of them, to take care of their child. And the problem with the abortion debate is that there are too few men involved, not mm. too many. Mm. And I think that if every man stood up and promised to take care of the mother and child, we'd see the abortion rate plunge overnight. I bet it would be get chopped in by far more than half. I, I, I would guess roughly around 70%. So that's that's how why I would say men are are more necessary than ever in this debate, mm. uh, and that when they say oh you don't have a uterus you don't have opinion that's a shut up tactic because abortion mm. groups want men to speak out when they support abortion and they don't want men to speak out when men don't support abortion so it's just a mm. you know shut up and please stop you know ruining our business model that tells women that we're there for them and men aren't. I'll try to state the pro-life position in my own words. Let me know if I got it right or it can be improved. Like premise one, it's wrong to kill an innocent human being. Premise two, the preborn child is a human being. Conclusion, hence it's wrong to kill the preborn. So th- does it sound like correct? You've been reading your Scott Klusendorf. <laughs> yeah, that basically that, that that basically summarizes it. The way we always put it in Canada, just because. It's the argument that we find works the best is human beings have human rights. Mm. Human rights begin when the human being begins. Mm. Science tells us when the new human being begins. Therefore, abortion is a human rights violation. Mm. Because they love the word human rights. And they don't exactly. Want... So, yeah, yeah. No, I just I said the same thing yeah, that you said. Yeah. It's just the, the, the terminology we know, have found works best here. It might um, something different might work where you're from. I've I, like in a lot of countries I've traveled in they're still perfectly comfortable with, mm. with, with calling abortion murder. So it really depends on, on where you are. That dictates which terminology works best. Yeah. But the case is yeah. the same, yes. Yeah, because like in my premise, because they always attack, like in my premise is, premise one is, is it, it's wrong to kill an innocent human being. And what mm-hmm. they do is they, they change some, like what's, what is a human being? Then they, they insert viability, consciousness, so that's what they normally attack the the first premise in my yeah in my case. we always and then we always say that they're saying that um it's human pl- we say to be human means you get human rights they say human plus 
something. Mm, mm, so mm. human plus viability, human plus mm. pain capable, human yeah, plus yeah. Uh, you name it, right? Just like when people were murdering um, like African-Americans under slavery, it was, you mm. know, human plus white or human plus male. And so whenever we've seen great injustices take place, it was when you said that being human wasn't good enough to receive human rights. You had to be human plus some other characteristic. Mm. And then when they concede on that one, they attack premise two uh, of my argument. The preborn child is a human being. So they ins- they make arguments that even though it's a human being, we have autonomy of our bodies. Mm-hmm. So so that's the next part of the argument. So they'll bring up the violinist argument. Uh, I- I'm sure you're aware of that. Yeah, Judith Jervis Thompson actually passed away uh, just a little while ago. Mm. Um mm-hmm. Can you tell, the, tell us about it? Yeah. And the interesting thing about the so so the, to summarize the the, the violinist analogy, mm. it's like you know what if you you know were knocked out and you woke up mm. and you were hooked up to a world famous violinist and they said um, you have to remain hooked up to this violinist for nine months because mm. you were sustaining that violinist and then uh, they basically ask, oh, well, so do you have a moral obligation to stay connected to that violinist or could you walk away? Mm. Now, the analogy breaks down immediately because. Uh, abortion isn't comparable to being hooked up to a stranger, for one. Mm. We're talking about your own child who's conceived and, and, and living in your womb, and the womb is the womb is, is made for the baby. Um, so the baby is where it belongs. You're not being hooked up to some foreign person. Second of all, the analogy mm. breaks down, because the analogy would be better if somebody said, so now that you're hooked up to the... Uh, now that you're mm. hooked up to the violinist, can you take a butcher knife and, and stab the violinist <laughs> to death and then leave? That would be far more analogous to what the abortion yes, procedure yes. is. Mm-hmm. But again, it's it's fundamentally just a misunderstanding of, of what autonomy means as well, because we all agree that there are limits placed on our autonomy when our actions hurt somebody else. Mm. Uh, and, and, and no time has that been more apparent than during the COVID-19 mm. pandemic, mm. when entire societies collectively agreed mm. uh, with growing protest that we could shut the whole economy down and lock everybody in their homes to protect the weak and uh-huh. the vulnerable. At least that's yeah. what that was the reason yeah. that was used. So yes. our, our governments, even pro-abortion governments, indicated that they don't believe a word of their pro-abortion autonomy arguments because the second it came down to discussing, well, what happens if the weak and the vulnerable, the elderly and the sick, are uniquely susceptible to this disease, what should our response be? And they say, shut everything down. Not just for nine months. We're going on a year and a mm. half now. Okay, the the things we discussed are philosophical reasons and arguments. I don't think the street level pro abortion advocate might like have these reasons after all. What are the common defense of the pro abortion people? You let's say the one you meet on the street. What are yeah? Yeah. So so autonomy is pretty common, but mm. it wouldn't be worded that intellectually, right? I've only mm. ever heard. Judith Jarvis Thompson get referred to on a North American university campus. So I've heard that a handful of times there, but the my body, my choice thing, I mm. think is pretty common mm. and standard everywhere. Uh, the, the number one, the number one um, reason you're going to get is, is the case of sexual assault, because it's obviously mm. the case that people have the most empathy for and very understandably so. And so you mm. do have to go back just to the, the human rights of the individual. But in that instance, of course, 
Um, we have something called hard apologetics, which also comes into play, which means it's very important that when you're responding to the question, you're showing mm. empathy mm. because in many instances, when they ask you what you think about rape uh, or what you think about abortion in the case of rape, mm. they're not trying to see whether you think the preborn are human. They're trying to see whether or not you're human. They're trying mm. to see whether or not this is something you also care about. Mm. And it's very easy to determine whether or not they're using it as a political gotcha mm. Um or whether or not this is an issue they actually care about. Because mm. if you say, well, um, that's you know less than 2% or less than 1% of abortions, what about the rest of abortions? At that point, they'll reveal to you whether or not they, they actually have an exception or whether or not they're just pro-choice, mm. um, full stop. Mm. And yeah, I agree. Like sometimes emotions get in the way in this uh, issue. And mm-hmm. it might be hard to like defend the unborn to a person who actually had an abortion. How do we deal when emotions are are on the line like that? So at CCBR, and I would encourage you actually to uh, to check out my colleagues who run a podcast called the Pro Life Guys Podcast, okay. and the whole mm-hmm. podcast is just dedicated to answering like difficult questions like this, like how do you respond when they're angry? How do you respond, you mm-hmm. know, when they say this? It's a very interesting podcast and you'd enjoy it. But okay. so here at CCVR, what we teach is that when you're when you're having a conversation with somebody, you're practicing three key strategic principles. Mm. And that's uh, establish common ground, use analogies, mm. and ask questions. So you use common ground right away. So to give you an example, I've had people come up to me and say, like, you know, what about all the kids in foster care? You know, why don't you why don't you care more about them? And and I could be like, of course I care about foster kids, mm. you know, and, and I could get defensive or I could say, like, I totally see where you're coming from. Like you're coming from the same place I am, which is you Mm. really care about hurting kids, right? You're establishing common ground so that you can use that common ground uh, to, to as the basis of a conversation and then using analogies um, as we discussed. And that's just important to do so that you can help them understand what they're Mm. saying and and, and what they're actually getting across. And then asking questions is really, really good Mm. because it's the Socratic method, right? Mm. You You know, by asking questions, you can slowly lead them to see their own inconsistencies. And I've had many conversations about abortion where the person ended up defeating his own arguments mm. as he just answered my questions one by one. Nice. So we talk about the advances of the media and the big tech promoting abortion. What about the pro-life side? What are our wins, major or minor, in the battle for life? Because I see some of some some landmark laws being passed in the U.S. recently. So can, so, can do you, you mean big tech wins or do you mean just wins in general? Wins in general, maybe uh, legal Okay, wins. so I, the, the win that I'm the most excited about recently actually is not in the U.S., it's in, it's in, it's in uh, Honduras, mm. where you saw a couple of countries, uh, when Argentina legalized abortion mm-hmm. by a very narrow margin, I might add, because mm. a number of politicians were basically browbeaten by the president who spent an enormous amount of time trying to switch a couple of votes mm. so that he could legalize abortion after they had just uh, voted against it in 2018, only a couple of years ago. But there was a lot of uh, progressive newspapers like The Guardian predicting that mm. this was going to you know, create a wave, a green wave across, across South America mm. and Latin America of abortion legalization. Instead, you had countries passing what they called shield laws, which wow. basically made it impossible to ever legalize abortion. Uh, one of the laws dictated that in order to legalize abortion, you would need, I forget what the threshold was, but a staggeringly high threshold 
um, of Congress in order to get it legalized. Basically, they made it more or less impossible uh, that, that abortion laws would ever be repealed. So, so far in response to, to the tragedy in Argentina, we've seen nations not move in that direction, but instead recognize uh, that the abortion industry wants to win by hook or by crook, mm-hmm. that they have foreign NGOs on their side, that they have the media on their side, and that they have to take measures to protect themselves, just like Ireland did back in 1983. So it's been not only encouraging, but exciting to see nations uh, take these solid steps. Mm-hmm. There's also a couple of places in, in Latin America where it seemed as if abortion was going to be legalized and, and has not been, that that the, uh, the presidents mm-hmm. have backed off of those promises. So abortion activists... Uh, are very frustrated at the moment. In in the United States, in terms of mm. good news, we've seen, I th- at last count, it was more than 550 pieces of pro-life legislation tabled since January. Mm. Mm. And we see good, uh, yeah. abortion once again headed to the Supreme Court, where Roe v. Wade yeah. could be either hollowed out further, further or possibly overturned. So there are definitely some very encouraging things happening. Thanks. Uh, as we wrap it up, uh, Jonathan... Mm. Uh, I just want to ask if you can summarize what can we learn from the West to avoid abortion. Maybe you already mentioned it, but let's just summarize how can we avoid it in the Philippines. Or maybe Mm. imagine if you got a time machine and you went back to pre-abortion Canada. What would you tell Mm. a country that doesn't have abortion yet and they're contemplating to have it legal? That's such an interesting question, because if I could go back to pre-abortion Canada, I would say something very different than I would say now, because the technology is so different. Hmm. So this makes it a particularly interesting question, because I'm I'm operating in dual realities as I try to answer (laughs) it. Um, Honestly, I think the best two examples right now, although although it's you know a sad irony that both of them ended up being defeated, is is Argentina and Ireland. When I look at how proactive they were, Hmm. so. One, mobilization is key. The pro-life message has to be visible and it has to be blunt. So the public needs to know what abortion is. They need to see abortion victim photography. They need to see photographs Mm. of dead babies. They need to see the truth about what abortion actually is. Because if they know what abortion actually is, then when they hear the term pro-choice or my body or my choice, they know what we're actually talking about. Because abortion activists win when we talk about choice. But pro-life activists win when we talk about what is being chosen and as long as the victim of abortion remains hidden it's very very easy for them to be able to pretend that abortion is about compassion rather than about killing so it is so important that we establish in the minds of the public what abortion actually is who the pre-born are and what abortion actually does to them and that's why we've seen so many people change their minds. It's not really the arguments primarily. It's the, a visual culture being confronted with the visual evidence of what the injustice of abortion actually does to hundreds of thousands of babies. Because as Greg Cunningham once said, when you hold up a sign of an aborted baby, abortion protests itself. Mm. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time. I know you're a busy man. <laughs> no, I very much enjoyed coming on. Thank you so much for what you're doing out there. Your questions were phenomenal. And it's just so important uh, in all these countries around the world that guys like you are standing up and, and, and starting to do the hard work of confronting the culture with the truth. Please invite the audience to your work and your social media page. Yeah. Um, so uh, you can find me at thebridgehead.ca is where my writing is. And I have a Facebook page. Uh, just jo- search for my name, Jonathan Van Mare. Okay. And thanks for being a blessing. Pro-life is just one of your many topics, but you also engage in like uh, 
on the culture war. I see you. Yeah, well, the world yeah. has gotten a lot crazier all around us. And so um, understanding the culture war, just for me especially, was important for understanding how we got to where we are with abortion in the first place. Yeah, I see you have like, a talk about like the transgender movement. I've been telling this to my audience because we don't have any of the leftist ideologies mm. here yet. But as time right. goes by, many kids are pushing these ideologies Mm-hmm. And yep. Yep. yeah, and I, I tell them before you suggest and do the experiment here in our country, there are already a lot of other countries who tried it and kind of destroyed their society because of it. Mm-hmm. So, why, why do we want these ideologies here? So, yeah, so so important to be vigilant. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Jonathan, hope we can invite you again soon to discuss other topics for sure. Anytime, all right. This has been another episode of the J. Aruga Show. At the end of the day, it will be night. Goodbye.